0: It's really my privilege to be here. You may guess that I've traveled farther than most. (laughs) And uh, and yet I want to talk tonight about a man who is really significant to me, um, who is a German. Uh, His name is Martin Luther. I met Martin Luther in London in 1992, I think it was, maybe it was 93. And let me explain that. I was at the University of London doing graduate studies, and in the course of my work, I was working on a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. And as I was looking at him, I thought, this man's stuff is wonderful. Where did he get it from? And I had another friend, a guy named Paul Blackham, working on his studies at the same time. He said, he got it from Luther. I said, really? Luther? This guy's a reformed Puritan. What's he doing talking? to or about, I guess he wasn't talking to, Luther, because Luther was over a hundred and some years earlier. So I went back and started reading Luther. What a guy. Oh, man. So I want to talk a little bit about Luther tonight. Okay. So Peter, who I work with and along with the team that we have together, he does the Bible stuff. I get to do the history stuff, but I sneak some Bible in because guys in history like Luther were really Bible guys. And whoa, was he a Bible man, this Luther? Let me tell you a little I'd like to introduce you to him at least one aspect of Martin Luther and why he made such a difference. Martin Luther was a really anxious, fearing, struggling, doubt filled student with a father who was a little rough on him, and life was hard for good old Marty, Martin. And things and then he had this thunderstorm. Have you any of you seen that movie Luther? Well, you should if you haven't, and some of you have, you'd say it's a good movie, I presume. It's a good movie, and it's really historically a pretty good movie, and as we go forward with the Martin Luther story, what happens, he is struggling because he thinks he has to uh, really please this ogre called God, who is saying, more, I want more, I tell you, I want more out of you. All right, I'll try and work harder. And he was really fearful about his relationship with God. He never could imagine his way into heaven because of his own sense of sinfulness. Okay, that's a little bit like me, to be honest with you. I know I'm a sinner. Well, Martin Luther said, I like this guy. And Martin Luther, as he goes forward, has this fellow who comes alongside of him, actually his supervisor, a guy named Staupitz, and says, stop it. It's a good way to remember his name. Stop it, Martin. Don't you get the grace of God? So what he does is he sends Martin Luther off to do studies of both Bible and theology. So he starts, Luther starts reading his Bible, Romans, the Psalms, Galatians, Corinthians. It's revolutionary for him. Absolutely stuns him. And furthermore, he reads Augustine, this old saint way back in the 5th century. And he's just riveted by what Augustine has to say about the love of God and the grace of God. Fascinating stuff. And so, what he does is, at one point in his life, he gets real excited and he writes 97 theses. And guess what? Nothing happens. Nothing at all. It doesn't sell. There's no crowd that gathers. No one even pays attention to it. The whole idea of his 97 theses is he wants to debate these points with other people, theologians, presumably. And who shows up for the debate? Frankly, I don't even think they rented a hall. No one was even interested. So he says, well, all right, what do we do now? So then he says, I'll just try again. So then he takes a new topic and writes 95 theses. BAM! The whole world explodes. The 95 theses are big stuff, way more than he ever expected. So uh, September 4th, the 97 theses, October 31st, this is all 1517, the 95 theses. It's like an electric... uh, Yeah. What would... Explosion. Anyway, whatever they had in those days, it happened. It was really massive. He didn't expect it. He was a theologian at Wittenberg, just thinking, let's have a conversation in the neighborhood. And the conversation burst out over the whole Western world. It was a massive explosion. And all of that led to the Reformation. But still no one met with him to debate his 95 theses. So guess what? In April of 1518... He then finally gets a chance to have a debate with some of the people in his movement, the Augustinian friars, the hermits. And when he gets this chance, what he debates is really interesting. He doesn't debate the issues of the 95 Theses. Anyone know what those 95 Theses were about? Indulgences and that stuff. In fact, what, what Luther says later to a guy named Erasmus is those are merely trifles The real issue has to do with how our soul operates towards God. That's the real issue that has to be wrestled through. And that's what he had written about in the 97 theses. In fact, what he recognized is his own struggle with sin was the struggle that is the battleground for almost everybody. I suspect even some of you have struggled with sin. I don't want to press that on you, but it could have happened. Could be. And I will confess freely, I'm a man who has struggled with my sense of being a sinner. I'm not godly. Instinctively, I go in some wrong directions. certainly before I met Christ. Oh, I was a mess. So Luther was singing my song. And so let me just read. You want to hear one of the 97 theses? Let me just give you just one. Here's the problem he's ready to wrestle with. He says, come on, I'll take you on, I'll debate debate you on. Number 17. Man is by nature unable to want God to be God. Indeed, man himself wants to be God and does not want God to be God. I mean, it's all right to have a token God, a sort of mm, pacified God, a weak and whimsical God, but not a real God. And that's the thrust that Luther starts his career with. He says, this is a big issue. If no one wants God to be God, we really don't have true worship. And if the problem, which he identifies also in the 97 Theses, of self-love or concupiscence, it was the term he put on it, is not broken, how will we ever be set free? And the answer is only by a love so great that it draws us out of our self-love. And that was his, his problem and cure arrangement. And that's the launching pad for his work in the Reformation. So when he finally gets his chance to have a debate, it takes place in Heidelberg, April in uh, 1518. And it's called the Heidelberg Disputation. And in that disputation, he has a new set of theses. Does he go back to the 95 Theses for which he's now very famous? In some circles infamous? No he doesn't. He skips right over the top and goes back and deals with the issues that he raised in the 97 theses, what's called the disputation against scholastic theology. And He says that issue back there that I first talked about, I want to talk about that. If I get a chance to talk to some theologians, here's the issue. The theology of glory. What's the theology of glory? Luther says the problem with the theology of glory is that everybody wants to be God, and people can be religious just with a purpose to have the benefits of God on their side. So set up a nice contract relationship with God where I get benefits, goods, and services, capacities, and whatever else I can squeeze out of them, so I can have more independence and autonomy. And Luther said the problem with that is that it doesn't fit the Bible because the world operates on the principle of pyramids. Have you ever thought about that? Everyone operates within environments of pyramids. I was once a Bible college teacher. I started out as a, we'll call it a lecturer, and then I moved up to be a, an assistant professor, and then I became an associate professor, and then I was in the process of uh, applying to become a full professor. Guess what I did? I dumped it. I said, I think I've had enough of this stuff my father was a pilot in the american air force he started out as a lieutenant second lieutenant first lieutenant captain major colonel okay do you see how the ranks go pyramid structures people in the business community income well what's your gross income what's your total i mean what's your personal value and the whole point is to see who gets near the peak of the pyramid i don't know if students ever face that problem firsts, seconds... How does that stuff work here? I don't even understand it. But is it a tension that we face? Pyramid climbing? Issues of standing and significance? Does it create any tensions for us at all? It sure does, doesn't it? And it damages us because all of us are deeply insecure at some level in ourselves because we know we are broken. We know we are sinners. We We know that there are inadequacies in us and we hardly dare let those inadequacies out because that would be so exposing. And Luther got all of that. And he says in his, uh, in his 18th uh, disputation or thesis for his disputation, he says, every person must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of God. If you unpack what he says here, and he in fact, gives a little more of an explanation, he said the reality is it's a gift to recognize our inadequacy and to even have the law come in and expose our inadequacy, not because we'll be able to keep the moral laws that we might be told about, but rather because we discover quickly that we do not have the ability to achieve righteousness. And what on earth are we going to do? And that leads us to what is his 20th thesis. He says, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering of the cross. And where is he getting this from? How is this the basis for the rest of his life in theology, which creates what we call the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation He recognizes that the Bible refuses to adopt the pyramid of power which come from some other source than heaven. Recall someone who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Oh, you disciples, the right-hand, left-hand stuff, don't you guys get it? Give yourselves away to others. Philippians chapter 2, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus who even though he was in the form of God did not count his equality with God as something he wanted to cling to but instead he emptied himself taking the form of a servant even to the point of dying on the cross. So does a theology of pyramid and power and glory really capture what Christianity is? Or does an inverted upside down pyramid capture what Christianity is? is and Luther said it has to start with the cross not the cross is a golden little thing that we dangle it's nice enough I won't despise those but I'll tell you what the cross was not a particularly beautiful instrument of torture and that's what it was it was a miserable way to die and what Luther does is he starts to read the Bible after having tried to be as righteous as he could be, failing utterly, being full of his angst and doubts and struggles, finally concluded, I cannot get there on my own. And when he started to read the Bible, it just unfolded for him Romans, where he recognized that it's the gift, that faith is a gift of God through grace. And one of the things that he then camps on as he talks about his theology of the cross, is a text in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. And let me just give a quick reflection on this and think it through in terms of its application to our own lives. We're all in different places, but I suspect that all of us reckon ourselves somewhat broken. And that's a good thing, according to Luther. But what about the Bible? Does the Bible affirm that? Well, let me just read to you. We'll pick it up. Well, here's the problem Paul had. Paul... What can I say? It was like an American speaking among a group of Englishmen who are really gifted speakers. You know, whatever it is, we Americans, we just kind of rough and stumble through conversations. Our speech, you know, it's not what we're proud of. It's not what we fuss over. We're more entertainment or that stuff. I mean, that's what we're good at. We're practical pragmatists. Then I'll hear an English, I mean, Peter's going to get up here. How could I talk like that? Well, you know, I just can't do that. Well, the problem was that Paul had a guy named Apollos who had come to Corinth. And Paul had founded the church, but in comes Apollos. Well, folks, today we will talk about, and he's just brilliant, stuns them, staggers them. They're all going, whoa, and, he, and plus that, the stuff he was getting was good. It wasn't bad stuff, good content. But pretty soon a party started forming around with like Apollos. Paul, you know, he just, if he was more articulate, if he had better training, you know. He didn't even, he doesn't even know church history. Well, that's okay, that's my error. Uh, whatever it was, they had something to pick on. And so he knows that he's being viewed as a low echelon figure. And so he just comes and says, oh gosh, I wish you'd still accept me. I wish you'd still put up with me. I mean, I know I'm weak. I know I'm wimpy. Uh, could you could you at least use me occasionally, at least for a CU talk once a year? Could you please, please, please? Listen to him. You want to listen to him? Listen to this guy. But we'll pick it up here. For Christ, chapter 1, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, for Christ did not send me to baptize, because some of the people who are saying, well, <laughs> Apollos baptized me. And they're listing other people who are doing baptisms. He says, he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. See, he recognizes his inadequacy. He says, that's fine. But listen to what he says. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Shall we go on? Listen to it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. See, what Paul recognizes is that God is not about his power and his glory, though there is the exchange of glory in the Godhead. The Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and it's a brilliant thing. So collectively, we can talk about the glory of God. Of course we can. But the reality is, Jesus says, Father, I want those that you would give to me to come to me so that they could see the glory you gave me From before the creation, the glory you gave me because you loved me. And that what we find is that the nature of pyramid climbing has a tendency to support the problem that occurred in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. You can become a person of great significance and substance. You don't have to be dependent on God. And what does the Bible say? Apart from Christ, how much can we do? Nothing. You see, this notion of independence, where I become God-like alongside God and hope to set up a treaty with him, take his benefits, is nonsense. And Luther got that. He said, throw it away. Start with the cross and recognize that we are introduced by faith into the life of Christ and he'll use the language of, of um, well, let's turn to uh, Galatians chapter two. One of the places where Luther really camped out, he he did perpetual commentaries on Galatians. In effect, it was a single ongoing commentary that started in, I think, 1517, and he continues it till 1535. This Galatians commentary was critical, and as he looks at it, he says, for through the law, he he would take on this content of um, chapter 2, verse 19, for through the law, Paul speaking, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if uh, righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason, for no purpose. And he goes on and he says, Having started, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now perfecting yourself in the flesh? He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's the point that Luther got out of this kind of teaching from Paul. That the way we go forward with Christ is not by trying to be good, but by letting the Spirit of God come in and transform us so we become good. In fact, the 40th of the... 97 Theses says this, We do not become righteous or just by doing just deeds. And he's quoting Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in that particular one. Because Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle, says the way you become virtuous is by practicing the virtues until it finally becomes a habit. And then at that point you become a good person. And what what does Luther say? Oh no, having been made good, we do just deeds. We we do things that are good, and the point that Luther got is that the Spirit of God comes in and the fruit of the Spirit is what? A love for God where what had once been there had been a love for self. In fact, Luther talked about sin as being curbed in on ourselves. What do we see in the Garden of Eden, chapter 3? Our being self, Adam and Eve, (laughs) oh, I'm inadequate, oh, naked, all that stuff. That was their condition just before they sinned. And as soon as God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to touch? It was a small thing, wasn't it? It was a declaration of independence. We Americans know about this stuff. (laughs) And that declaration of independence meant that God was no longer their God. And at that moment, they were independent and utterly inadequate. You know where inadequacy really comes from? Not being in touch with the one who created us for good works and prepared those beforehand that we should walk in them. Apart from him, we can do nothing that's useful. But in him, what happens? The love of God captures us, draws us. The life of Christ moves within us by his spirit, who dwells within us and changes us from one degree of glory to another. Second Corinthians, that's a work of the Spirit. As we gaze on Christ as He's revealed in the gospel. Now that's a pathway I think we can live with because what it does is it takes my eyes off of my inadequacies and I quit having to be defensive about, well, I'm only part way up the pyramid, but I'm really working hard to get to the peak. I'm trying. Throw it away. That's a theology of glory. Let's start with the theology of the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. Sure, I'm broken. I've got weaknesses, but I know someone who is ready to make me whole. And he's already at work in me. And does it change the way we live? Oh, man. I've got to tell a story. I had a student when I was teaching at this college in Portland, this Bible college, who came up and he says, hey, we've got an idea. We're going to do this and it's just going to be wild. I went, "Wild? Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> Are you sure you want to do that? They were doing a campus ministry. It was Campus Crusade for Christ, kind of like UCCF, except in the States, Campus Crusade was fairly common. And they were at a place called Reed College in Portland. Now, Reed College is uber left. I mean, really. I mean, if you want to get your Christianity decimated, go to Reed College. It is just massively cynical and robustly antagonistic towards Christianity. So Christians kind of come in, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, it's that sort of thing, just really shy about declaring their faith. So anyway, here are two guys. Tony is the one of them, and a guy named Don is the other one. And they decide at the end of the year, they have their graduation festivities where everyone turns in their senior thesis and the seniors, and they have a big, robust orgy. And it, it, all the things you can think of take place. And campus security looks outward to keep people from coming on campus rather than inward to stop people from doing things. Well, so what does this campus ministry couple pair of guys decide to do? And this is what Tony told me about ahead of time. I said, no, but Green College, no, don't do that. What they did is they put up something. The, the whole thing is a Renaissance theme. They call it the Ren Fair the Renaissance Fair, and what these guys did is got monkish robes and put up a confessional booth and wrote on the side of it four confessions. Now with all the mm, awkward stuff going on on campus, this could either be a group of Christians sticking their finger in the eyes of the non-Christians and say, we are holy and you guys are really unholy and we can let you come to holiness if you're willing to confess your sins. At Reed College, I'll tell you, that wouldn't sell, okay? I probably wouldn't sell at your universities either, would it? Think about it. So he says, here's what we're going to do. And he told me about it. And I went, really? And so here's what happened. The first, Don was the guy on in the confessional booth when the first Reed student ventured up to find out what this was about. <laughs> he comes up. And the guy says, quoting, quoting Tony here, uh, so what do you want me to confess my sins to you? Is that what you want? No, no, Don says with all seriousness. He says, thanks for coming. He says, no, no, we're we're part of the Christian community on campus and we're here to confess our sins to you. Would you be willing to hear? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're Christians and you've heard about the, the pedophile priests. That's part of Christendom. We just want to confess that's really hideous stuff. It's really wrong. Would you receive our confession? But you guys didn't do that. No, no, but it's part of our community. And if you don't know that we know it's wrong, I mean, what are you going to think of us? So please accept that. And have you heard heard about uh, stuff back centuries ago? Torturing and, you know, and he went through the whole list of everything that any Reed College professor would throw as a brick against Christianity, and there were lots of bricks to throw. He confessed them one after another, one after another. By this time, he's literally teary. He's genuine about it. This is not a mock-up. This is not a mockery. He's genuinely saying, you've got to know that we Christians know that stuff is wrong. And we want to offer Christ, but how can anyone hear about Christ if they think that we're so proud that we, we would defend this kind of behavior? It was really wrong. Please forgive us. And the guy says, okay, okay, I'll forgive you. And before long, there were over 100 students lining up to get into the confessional booth to hear this confession of the church. I had a chance to go and speak to that, call it a CU, the equivalent to a CU. They used to have six or seven. By the time I showed up there, they had about 70 students. The impact of the gospel was powerful. Was that climbing the pyramid or was that coming with the cross and offering it to people who understood brokenness and heard in these two Christian men a willingness to say, we're broken, but we've met one who forgives us. And all of a sudden, people were interested. I hope that's useful to you. Can we just pray? Father, we thank you so much for Martin Luther. We thank you so much for the inspiration that comes through him. But really, it's through the inspiration of your word, which reveals your humility in Christ. The willingness, Father, that when you sent your son to die on the cross, you were letting your beloved son become sacrifice a sacrifice for us. And we thank you for your mercy there. And that you call not the, not many who are wise or mighty or power brokers, but you take the weak and the poor and you, you meet us with mercy. And Father, may we go out and offer mercy wherever we go. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.